0: Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this episode, we speak with Dean Chen, Senior Advisor to the China Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and Carrie Bingen, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, on Reaching Through the Stars, China's Advancement
1: in the Space Race. We hope you enjoy. So thank you both for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: So for most people, I think the concept of space seems really far away from reality, we only access it through Hollywood movies. Um, why should everyday Americans be concerned with the politics of space and why should be they be concerned specifically about the proliferation of Chinese space programs and maybe Carrie will start with you.
3: I think that it's a good place to start with how space affects us in our everyday lives. Why is it important to the average American? Um, It fuels our economy. You think about GPS use in our mobile phones and deliveries. Uh, uh, Anytime we go to the ATM machine or you go to the gas station, you are relying on space capabilities to enable to make that transaction. Our ability to communicate across the globe, understand the weather and the environment, we use space every day and we maybe don't realize it space also just gives us an advantage it gives us an advantage on the diplomatic front seeing the buildup of russian forces before they crossed into uh uh, invaded ukraine uh on the national security front intelligence um, our military relies on space uh, as the ultimate high ground it underpins all of our military operations it allows us to use uh precision weapons uh so that you don't have to use as much but also to uh to uh uh, prevent um uh, friendly friendlies on the ground from from being struck it fuels our technology sector it attracts uh, scientific and technical talent uh, into our industrial base china wants those same benefits both the economic uh, the national security benefits as well as the technology advantage That was very
1: comprehensive. Dean, anything that you would add to that?
2: Um, I think it's fascinating that 65 years after the start of the space age, uh, the extent to which on the one hand, as Kerry noted, space is actually part of our daily lives. Um, If you want to know where your Amazon package is, that's partly based upon GPS, partly based upon communication satellites. If you want to know whether tomorrow's weather, or next week's weather is going to be very good, weather satellites are an essential part of that. But space is, in a sense, in the background, it enables our lives, but it isn't obvious. And so you're right, people often think, well, what does space have to do with me other than my morning Tang? And the answer is actually a whole lot of your day to day activities are definitely influenced and impacted by space.
1: So historically lagging behind the United States and Russia in the, in the global space race, China has made really rapid advancements um, in recent years that um, pose a threat to American supremacy in, in space. So the head of the Chinese Lunar Ec- Exploration Program even likened the contest for space to disputed islands in the South China Sea. Um, what methods is Beijing developing to expand China's presence in space?
2: So. I think that when we look at the Chinese space program, we need to recognize the key term here is comprehensive. We see the Chinese pushing across the board, whether it's in space launch, satellite manufacturing, in terms of satellite manufacturing, every type of satellite, reconnaissance satellites, weather satellites, communication satellites, uh, big satellites in terms of uh, ones that are multi-mission capable, uh, like large communication satellites, but they're also a major player in small sats. Uh, they are basically, um, at this point, probably actually on level with the United States in terms of interplanetary exploration. Consider that until about 2021, every image from Mars was American. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those wonderful, fascinating Mars rover shots and all that, those were all American. The next set of pictures came from Chinese missions. Mm-hmm. Um, No other country, not Europe, not Russia, not Japan, has successfully landed on Mars. China was the first country to land on the far side of the moon. Not even we had done that. So in some respects, they are actually are equal, and in a number of aspects, including their growing ability to exploit space for all the various mission areas that that Kerry noted, um, the Chinese are catching up and have actually eclipsed Europe and Russia, in many cases,
3: I think Dean said it right. I, I not only is China's program comprehensive, but it is the most expansive space program that we are seeing right now. Uh, not just in how it's using space, but also the threats that it, it is developing to counter others' space capabilities. President Xi has made it very clear in his space dream that he wants China to 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 match and surpass the United States uh, in their space capabilities. They've designated aerospace as one of their top 10 uh, technology areas for prioritization. So you have government will, direction from the top, increased defense spending and prioritization against space, uh, greater state and private investments. And then you also have China targeting our technology and our other Western Uh, companies advance technologies uh, through both legitimate means, investment, but also stealing the technology. So they also have a full campaign uh, underway to uh, advance their technology and and in many cases steal ours.
1: And how would you describe China's reason for that goal? So you said that their goal is that they want to supplant the United States. Um, Do we... Why do they want to? I mean, is this generally they want to beat the United States and everything, is this part of them wanting to create a sort of new world order? Is it them trying to intimidate other countries? Is there a nefarious reason for it, a, a non-nefarious reason? Um, in your own opinions, what do you think is the, the impetus behind this for China?
3: So I'd offer three areas. First is, is the national security and military advantage. Uh, they recognize that if you uh, can dominate in space and you can leverage uh, GPS-like capabilities, they have a system called Beidou. you have intelligence capabilities where you can see forces massing on the ground, you have communications, that that gives you an edge on the battlefield here on Earth, so it's an advantage. Economically, they want to see the same benefits that we see economically from communication satellites from GPS-enabled markets, both national security and commercial, agricultural, you name it. But then there's also a third piece to this, which is um, they are intent on shaping the world order to their system, their institutions, their values, which are vastly uh, different from ours. So uh, if you can get more countries around the world to adopt their autocratic model, their methods for surveilling and controlling communications, including from space, you are now um, creating greater alignment to their view of, of, of what the world order should look like.
2: Um, I think also that there's a couple of uh, in from their perspective, very fundamental issues at work. Um, from the CH- CCP's perspective, we are now living in the information age. The currency of international power is not simply how many merchant ships do you produce or how many steel I-beams have you made, but the ability to generate and move information. And space is a key means of doing both of those things, of seeing things, of communicating, of transmitting information. So if you fall behind in space, you are going to have a hard time leading in the information age. The other thing is that the Chinese leadership sees space And in their terms, it is very dense in high technology. If you think about a satellite, it has advanced materials, it has advanced communications capabilities, it required advanced manufacturing, required systems integration, systems engineering, improve your space capabilities, and you have these knock-on effects, you have these these additional benefits. And I don't think it's an accident that, for example, a lot of China's aerospace executives wound up being transferred over to COMAC, their commercial airline corporation, because the Chinese also want to compete in other aspects like manufacturing their version of the Boeing 777 and 787. And they see if you have experience in aerospace, you can port that set of capabilities in manufacturing and design over to other industries. Mm.
1: Um, so, Dean, you had mentioned that um, in certain areas, China is um, is not only um, achieving what the United States and, and Europe have achieved in the space realm, but actually surpassing us. Um, so what are the specific areas that China seems to be focusing on in terms of expanding its space
2: programs? Um, so we see this in a number of areas. Uh, we see them, for example, they field a full portfolio of weather satellites whereas it took us years to finally update a lot of ours, This is in part because they have programmatic stability. When they say we are gonna produce a series of satellites by 2027, 2030, they will get those satellites up by 2027 or 2030, and you won't have these uh, constant changes in budget and design. One of the key areas that they have made major advances in is counter space capabilities. We've seen them demonstrate the ability to shoot down satellites. Mm. Uh, one of those uh, tests generated more debris than any other incident throughout the space age. We have seen them test uh, the ability to kill satellites at geosynchronous orbit, probably the most valuable uh, real estate in space. We're seeing them develop a variety of capabilities, including directed energy, uh, kinetic kill satellites, jammers, etc. Um, Our Congress has chosen in its infinite wisdom to limit our ability to test anti-satellite systems, pretty much ignoring the fact that both Russia and China are openly pursuing such capabilities.
1: Why have they done that? Why have they decided to do Um,
2: that? It's somewhat complicated, but it comes down to this idea, beloved in political science and arms control theory, that if we don't do things, other people won't. Mm. Um, Because of course, other countries never make decisions on their own. They only do it in response to the United States. Um, The reality of course, is that China has uh, openly tested ASAC capabilities. So if the Russians, and they pretty much ignore the fact that we have now even announced that we are not going to even test anti satellite capabilities, a decision made by this administration Um, hailed uh at geneva held at at university campuses but i think that if you go to u.s space force um they're actually going to be rather concerned about that kind of denial
3: and you hear space force leadership talking more about this idea of denying others the use of space denying them an ability to close their kill chain so what does that mean china is making great road inroads in developing their own intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, ISR satellite architectures from space. They now have this very high, high seeing eye on the ground. And when you pair that with the inroads that they're making on compute, on artificial intelligence and processing, they are quickly developing the capability to detect and target our forces, our bases, our allies and partners on the ground using their space capabilities. So when you hear Space Force leadership talk about, we now need to figure out how do we protect our forces on the ground from their ability to use space to target us, you're now starting to see the door open to uh, a robust discussion, a a needed robust discussion on how do we deny their use of space? And that ultimately leads down the path of, us developing our own counter space weapons and offensive capabilities, but we do that in every other domain. So we need to mature that thinking as well in the space domain.
1: Is there any concern, you know, you hear this in, in conventional sort of context, but also I wonder in the space context, um, you know, as we worry about how China is going to use certain equipment and AI is a great example of this, we maybe are speeding along very rapidly so that we can beat them, but may not be giving enough consideration to how we're building those systems. Um, so is there any fear of like us being in a situation where we're very worried about what they're doing and so we're, we're just trying to kind of go as quickly as possible? Or do you think that there's sort of a reasoned consideration as we're pursuing um, our advancements in, in, in space?
2: So when it comes to artificial intelligence in space, um, I think a couple of things to keep in mind. When the Chinese talk about artificial intelligence, what they are focused on is not Cyberdyne Systems Model 101 Terminators. (laughs) Uh, What they are focused on instead is the use of artificial intelligence to manage the terabytes of data per minute that are going to sweep over the modern battlefield, including in space. How do you manage Huge amounts of data like that that is constantly being updated. And the idea is that you can only do it at the speed of light, and that means the speed of computing, which is artificial intelligence. In space, this is further exacerbated by the reality that everything in space actually moves very fast. Mm and your reaction time is measured in literally seconds or less, microseconds uh, in some cases. So what the Chinese are talking about when it comes to artificial intelligence in space is space traffic management, space situational awareness, being able to track the thousands of objects in space, and then being able to do something about it if necessary, whether it means moving a Chinese satellite or firing an intercept or maybe a directed energy weapon. As the Chinese also push into what's termed cislunar space, the volume of space between Earth and the moon, as the Chinese talk about establishing lunar colonies and the like, that space traffic management issue is also going to require artificial intelligence because again, things are going to be moving very fast, uh, your reaction time is going to be very limited, and your ability to keep watch over everything is going to really push the limits of human capacity. Um, so, there's both the military and the broader space exploration aspects that AI is going to be
3: affecting. Yeah, I think the gloves are off in this AI race right now. Um, the last national defense strategy had made the point of you know, the, the, the nation, uh, the, the forces that are able to command and adapt and integrate with artificial intelligence first is going to have the advantage. And in this business, it really is all about who has that competitive advantage. I think what's different now, which is quite interesting. And and former uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob work used to highlight this is we are now in an era, this this third offset where in the past, the way that you offset um, um, parity or, or if you were behind was the first offset was 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 the nuclear uh, evolution. The second one was precision weapons to offset a conventional uh, a disadvantage. Now you have uh, technology like artificial intelligence and advanced compute that is helping to to offset, uh, offset disadvantage or enable a, a, a nation to have advantage. What's interesting this time, however, is that um, the cutting edge artificial intelligence research and development, it's not government funded and it's not being led by governments. It's being led by the commercial sector. So that puts, I think, an even greater impetus on us and and on the government to figure out how do they best leverage and integrate those technologies and work with the commercial sector so
1: it's really interesting because in the in china they have civil military fusion so the sort of government and and uh, uh military apparatus kind of control what the commercial sector is, is doing in these spaces. And in the United States, it sounds like the commercial sector is kind of, you know, controlling the development in these things. So which, which do you see as sort of like the better long term model here? I mean, on the one hand, China can direct its resources much more effectively, as you mentioned, um, what is sort of the value of the commercial aspect of this? Is it more advanced innovation?
2: Well, i think first off we need to recognize that military civil fusion or civil military fusion in china is partly a function of the chinese view of themselves as still less developed than the west so every renminbi has to do as much duty double duty triple duty as possible if i'm going to invest uh renminbi in building railways those railways need to be able to support both commercial and industrial purposes but also military purposes and so what we have seen is when the chinese build railway stations they specifically build the loading facilities to handle entire armored battalions so that they can load and offload all at once so that's a lot of weight um, so when we look at things like space which a rand report from the 1990s said is 95 percent dual use when we look at things like artificial intelligence what the Chinese are saying through civil military fusion is look, you can't, we China cannot afford two separate industrial bases. So every advance needs to be able to do both commercial duty, if useful, if necessary, if it's competitive, but also serve military ends and purposes. Um, what that means is a whole lot of industrial policy, which is wonderful. If you think you're bureaucrats, can consistently pick winners over time. If, however, um, industrial policy setters are influenced by corruption, by political interests, by basically picking wrong, then you miss the boat. And that is the challenge for the West: is we believe in free enterprise. We believe that a lot of decisions made at lower levels, a la Friedrich Hayek, is going to produce better results. The Chinese who are still run by the Chinese Communist Party, believe, no, a small handful of people making those decisions at the top more often wind up right.
3: And for me, this also is a matter of values and transparency. Um, The military civil fusion policy paired with the Chinese national intelligence law passed back in 2017 compels commercial entities to work with the government to share their share secrets uh, and to keep it keep it uh, 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 not shared so to keep it close hold the united states doesn't have that kind of compellence policy that compels commercial industry to work with the government we'd like to work with former government person is i would like to see the commercial sector work more closely with the government because i think there's a lot of innovation and technology to take advantage of the government can't compel this um i saw it firsthand when i was at the pentagon uh, uh, overseeing a, a, an a artificial intelligence program looking at full motion video called project maven we couldn't compel a large technology company to work with the department of defense it took a lot of discussions it took um Uh, greater uh, uh, transparency into how the Department of Defense wanted to use that technology and the curbs that they put in place. So there's still there is a choice and there's transparency that we have in the American system that you just don't have in China.
1: I I want to talk a little bit about about the American system. And I want to start with something that that you both mentioned, you referenced um, the Space Force. So what help us kind of understand what the Space Force's role in all of this is, I think there's sort of like this image of the Space Force as you know, sort of like militarizing space, but that's not really what they're there for. So I'd love to kind of hear what their role in this competition looks like and how they're trying to, um, to either combat China or advance American interests in space.
3: So I'd say the Space Force, they are a military service. So their job is ultimately to protect and advance our national interests and our national security in space. So just like any other service, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, they have this responsibility to organize forces to train our service members and to equip them with space capabilities. Uh, As Dean was talking earlier about the the growing threats to space capabilities, that was a big motivation behind the establishment of the Space Force. So uh, protecting and defending against those threats and ensuring that our space capabilities can support forces on the Earth with GPS, with communications, with intelligence, uh detecting missile launches um having a greater awareness of what's happening in the space environment but then also as we talked about earlier is seeing other uh other adversaries that would use space against us how do we now deny their use of space so a broad mission set that ultimately comes down to protecting our national security interests in space.
1: What types of tools do we have for that last part that deny others use of space? What types of things are we talking about in that realm?
2: Well, the DIA uh, kindly provided a report a couple of years ago about the various capabilities broadly speaking, technologically speaking, not by country, of what you can do to uh, counter space systems. So there's everything from, because ultimately space platforms, satellites and like, are about information, gathering it and moving it. Um, Some of the tools available include jamming, include hacking, uh, whether you're hacking the satellites, whether you're hacking the ground stations, whether you're hacking the software that controls the satellites, or the data flowing over it. Then you've got the Um, stuff that captures people's imagination, the the Star Wars space weapons. No lightsabers or X-wings yet, but uh, we are talking about direct ascent kinetic kill vehicles, uh, co-orbital kinetic kill vehicles. Uh, We are talking about uh, the potential use of things like lasers, particle beams, etc., high-powered microwaves. Um, And then some interestingly exotic options, like, for example, aerosols um in space as a vacuum if you fired off a bunch of essentially say paint it would form a cloud that wouldn't necessarily go anywhere if you put that cloud between the satellite uh, say a reconnaissance satellite and earth you would essentially block Mm -hmm. its view until the satellite moved with a cloud of paint that would sort of sit there um so there's some interesting um At least theoretical options available that again um, if i remember i was a dia report from a few years back that is publicly available
3: and at csis we produced a report a few years ago looking at different ways to defend against these threats Um, so i would offer there is a spectrum of just like there's a spectrum of threats there's a spectrum of different ways to defend against threats to our space assets and it isn't always defense on orbit there are things that you can do on the ground um, uh, to protect our, our ground stations and our networks uh, our, our networks here. So it can range uh, from physical, technical ways and, and architectural, so just having many more satellites rather than a handful of really large, exquisite satellites, diversify your architecture and now put up hundreds to thousands, makes it a lot harder for an adversary to target and take down thousands than it does six. Um, if you're concerned about cyber, you know you increase your cybersecurity. If you're concerned about uh, laser dazzling, you can put filters on your satellites. There are also operational uh, uh, techniques and tactics that you can use. If you see an incoming uh, satellite cozying up to you, you can you can move out of the way. Um, so uh, maneuvering operations, and then there's policy too that we talked a little bit about earlier. So. Um, bringing together the international community uh sanctions to and other uh, uh other ways in policy to um, to send a a, a deterrent message um, responding to bad behavior.
1: Um, the Department of Defense identified three areas um, as priorities um, for US outer space operations. So they said space control, space cooperation, and space classification. And I'm wondering for those of us who are not experts in this in this space, so to speak, um, what do each of those three things mean and how do they relate to our broader objectives in space? Maybe start with Dean.
2: Well, space classification actually is probably the most important uh, because it's a prerequisite. Um, there are, uh, if I get the number probably wrong, but something like 24,000 objects in Earth orbit. Everything from uh, paint flecks to uh, satellite, uh, dead satellites to rocket bodies uh, from second stages and the like. Knowing keeping track of them, keeping track of where they are at any moment, where are they heading? Is there going to be a potential collision which has occurred? Um, Keeping things like the International Space Station, the Chinese Space Station safe, all of that requires tracking these thousands of objects, knowing what they are, knowing are they live satellites, possibly weapons, or are they, you know, gloves, literally, uh, I think there's a camera, there's literally a, a handheld camera in orbit that got off of one of our astronauts. Um, after that, um, space control is sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum. Knowing what's up there is one thing, being able to do something about it, including defending your own systems, maneuvering your satellites so that they don't run into something else in the process. Um, and then space...
1: Um, space uh, control,
2: no, cooperation, well, cooperation, and yes, uh, so space cooperation is perhaps the hardest in some ways, because while we have the Artemis Accords, et cetera, that are talking about US cooperation with key friends and partners. Uh, There is limited at best prospect right now for space cooperation with the People's Republic of China, and our ability or desire to cooperate with Russia in space is even more limited. We are cooperating on the International Space Station, uh, although the Russians every so often threaten to boot us off. Um, But given the war in Ukraine um, and ongoing tensions between uh, the West and Moscow, uh, there's limited prospect at best of increased cooperation. Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, all the usual uh, suspects in terms of bad actors.
3: I, I do think there is a great amount of opportunity cooperating with allies and partners in space, and I think we're really just at the cusp of that. Uh, on the military front, we've long done it on the civilian space front, and NASA has been a fantastic ambassador Uh, for space cooperation there. But as the Space Force builds up its capacity, um, I think there'll be greater opportunities, uh, whether with our European allies and and, and NATO, with uh, Japan, Australia, South Korea, um, uh, Middle East, there's some growing space programs there with the UAE. So I think there are a lot of opportunities there. And I think that's one strategic advantage that the United States has over China. We have allies and partners who, Want to genuinely work with us. Um, China, I think, has
2: maybe Russia right
3: now, maybe North Korea as well.
2: (laughs) Uh, Venezuela, actually. Uh, They have indicated that they uh, are going to invite Venezuela to participate in the quote unquote International Lunar Research Station, which also is going to involve the Russians.
1: Yeah, it sounds promising. Um, So uh, what. As we think about, you know, China's rise in this space, like what are the things that we should be really proud of that we've been able to achieve? In what areas in space? Are we currently still surpassing uh, China?
2: Uh, at the moment, uh, deep space exploration uh, remains dominated by the United States visiting the outer planets. Uh, I believe we outnumber everybody else in terms of visiting places like Saturn, Jupiter, uh, Pluto. Although the Chinese are going to be pushing an expedition to the Jovian moons, uh, one hopes that uh, they don't go to Europa. I believe that that's been reserved for somebody else. Um, <clears throat> so, um, in terms of building an integrated space architecture, simply because we've been doing it longer than they have, um, and uh, the U.S. remains U.S. Space Force remains the key provider for space domain information in terms of keeping track of those 20,000 plus objects in space, and we provide updates uh, to various other space operators for free. Um, That is still pretty much the gold standard. Um, If we think that there's going to be a collision, we inform all the operators and other countries, uh, other commercial operators basically um, depend on the US to do that. China one doesn't seem to yet have the architecture to maintain such monitoring but more to the point they don't seem to do they don't seem to believe in altruism they don't seem to be providing that kind of information to other players much less doing so for free on a regular uh, updated basis
3: i still believe and would assess that the united states is the number one space power and you can see it in terms of the satellite capabilities that we launch um uh, what our intelligence community is doing however i am concerned with the trend lines that we're seeing out of china and and um their leadership intent to match and surpass us but for now our isr capabilities our 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 missile warning capabilities uh gps i mean we still have uh uh, the lead there you look at our commercial sector um really the the revolution that SpaceX and Starlink has brought uh, not just to the commercial sector, but to the battlefield, like in in Ukraine. Um, So we have this phenomenal commercial sector that is allowed to innovate and really push the envelope um, largely through private capital investment, not taxpayer dollars. So, So government needs to take advantage of that. I think we're still the partner of choice globally. You know, NASA has led the way there, but increasingly Uh, you see uh, countries around the world want to work with our with our department of defense on space and space security and then i I just want to echo dean's point about transparency is the way that the u.s um, largely conducts operations is through um, they are transparent in their data sharing transparent when it comes to uh, uh, space exploration and lunar activity if there is a risk of collision um, you have an uh, entire organization that's responsible for uh, uh, providing public information, providing information to operators to try to mitigate the risk of collisions. Um, you don't see the same practice or behavior out of the Chinese side. Now I mean, there's so we talked to go over classification earlier, so I mean, I think that there are still challenges, and there will remain some some, I'll say performance attributes that that will need to 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 stay classified. But in general, the US is much more transparent about its activities and its budgets and programs uh, than than China.
1: And as you think about the areas where we would need to advance at a much more rapid pace than we currently are, what are the types of technologies that you think the US government should be prioritizing as it relates to um, space competition with China?
3: I I think um, i'd largely start with scale and speed is the us we've operated in space for a long time thinking it was generally this pristine environment we could build these large school bus size satellites and they could basically operate unchallenged or or unthreatened and as we've talked about that operating environment has dramatically changed so um those school bus side satellites that cost billions of dollars and took 10 years to build we now need to shift that model to building dozens hundreds thousands of satellites on much more rapid timelines Um, we need to have the the responsive launch capabilities to be able to get those up on orbit much more quickly Um, we need to be able to better leverage what the commercial sector is doing in space and better integrate with our allies and partners. Um, You really, uh, I I think, um, affect China's decision calculus when they're not just up against the United States, but they see this united front of an integrated architecture with um, the United States plus our allies and partners. in space.
2: I think that uh, one of the things that Kerry noted about leveraging commercial, uh, perhaps one of the most important things we need to do is to get out of our own way. Um, The next generation of SpaceX launch vehicles is Starship. This is going to be a heavy lift vehicle, the kind of thing that would support operations to the moon, potentially to Mars. Um, The latest uh, move by this administration is to give the Fish and Wildlife Service a say in whether or not Starship is going to even have a second test. Now, with all due respect to the Fish and Wildlife Service, I'm not sure their expertise in terms of space launch capability assessment. Um, And by the way, this has never been done before. There was no, you know, uh, to give an example, Neil Armstrong and company did not have to put an application in with the Fish and wildlife service before going to the moon. Uh, But if you're going to insist on that sort of thing, guess what, you're going to hobble one of the engines of innovation, one of the engines of technology, Um, A second area, uh, more at the tactical level, is cyber, simply because it permeates everything. And so, space has so many points of vulnerability, the quote-unquote attack surface is wide. Your launch facilities, your mission control facilities, the mission data software, the data that it's collecting, all of that is potentially vulnerable. And then finally, again, our adversaries are openly pursuing counter space capabilities. Elections have consequences. We have elected leaders who have chosen, not just at the executive, but legislative branch, to say, yeah, that's okay. We're not going to be pursuing icky technologies like that. It's gonna be even ickier, I suspect, if our satellites get blown out of the sky, if our systems are not there for US servicemen and women, whether in the Indo-Pacific, the Middle East, or the Black Sea.
1: I want to stay on this idea about um, the commercial sector, because Dean, um, you wrote a GIS report called Space Invaders, the Rise of Commercial Firms, and you laid out three different scenarios for, um, uh, for commercial actors. So first, that space companies become strategic players and can kind of work with a range of clients. Um, The second that it gets a little bit fragmented. And it's a challenge in terms of um, establishing operational norms and standards. And then the third was that space companies end up aligning with specific nations. So which of these scenarios do you see as the most likely outcome? And and why? Yes. (laughs) Um,
2: I think that actually we're going to see a a hybrid or a mix of all three. Um, I think the idea that space companies will be strategic players, some of them, I think is inevitable. Um, Someone like uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX has already attracted the unwanted attention of the People's Republic of China, who has held conferences saying, how do we counter SpaceX in the event of a conflict? uh we know that uh, starlink was attacked almost immediately by russian hackers and interestingly responded faster than dod could um in terms of countering those cyber attacks um i think that we are going to have fragmentation simply because it is an international market it's not just american companies uh or even western companies uh we're seeing israel we're seeing south korea we're seeing uh least other middle east countries south america getting into it and so while big players uh, lockheed martin united launch alliance are probably not going to say i think i want to work with china and china aerospace science and technology corporation certainly isn't going to say i i think our bottom line in working with america is more important how does india respond how does a south korean launch company or a brazilian satellite manufacturer uh, how do data services companies um, that could do analysis on space uh, derived information respond after what we've seen in ukraine what could eventually develop say in the middle east or god forbid if a taiwan contingency came up where you are talking about the number one and number two economies in the world going at each other um it's not at all clear how non-american non-chinese companies will necessarily respond let's keep in mind french president macron has made very clear that in his view a conflict over taiwan is something that europe should stay out of staying out of meaning essentially not siding with the united states
3: what's really interesting now is that with the diffusion of the technology—it—it's it, no, you're—it's no longer um, a handful of countries that can build these exquisite billion-dollar school bus-sized satellites. There are over 90 nations now that have varying degrees of space programs, whether within their governments or their commercial sectors. Um, universities can build a beer fridge-sized satellite or a microwave-sized satellite uh, um, and launch it, maybe for the cost that you know you'd launch a, you'd buy a car off the lot on. So it's become so much more accessible. Countries around the world now have a choice. You know, do we buy from a US commercial satellite company, uh, communications or um, remote sensing data? Or do we buy from a Chinese company or a European company or, or something else? I think the US, we still want to be that partner of choice, whether it's as a government partner or as a commercial partner. I say the challenge to some of that is that we still have policies in place that lag the technology that assume that the US is still the top dog when it comes to space technology. And that's no longer the case today. Other countries have a choice. So, um, you know, do we want to strengthen our, our industrial base, strengthen our pool of stem talent in the space sector? Or are we going to uh, inhibit that while China and others uh, grow theirs and, and become more competitive on the international market? So there's an economic piece to this in addition to a national security piece.
1: I think also in terms of the national security piece um, earlier this year, there were um, reports that um, Starlink either had been shut down or wasn't turned on for um, a potential Ukrainian um, counterattack into into Russia using their satellites. So my question is sort of whether related to that specific instance or not ultimately um, these commercial actors will have some measure of control um, as other countries are trying to use their satellites, potentially even for military purposes. So how do you think policymakers should think about that? And should those commercial actors have the freedom to sort of turn on and off um, foreign countries ability to sort of use their systems for military activities? Well,
2: I think first off, the listeners and viewers of this podcast should actually go and do some research regarding what specifically occurred in the case of SpaceX, Starlink, and Ukraine. Without getting into the uh, details of that, I think what is uh, very important to recognize is that DOD has stated that it has no obligation, the U.S. Space Force is not obligated to protect private commercial satellites. And in this regard, it's a lot like Cyber Command is not necessarily going to defend corporate IT structures. This is completely new because of these environments, because of how they operate and where they operate. Um, In the past, if you attacked a US ship at sea, that was an act of war. Here, it's become much more complex. So this is going to sound a little bit like a cop-out, but probably the most important thing that we need to do is to, one, have a debate on this, and two, actually think hard about what do we want the government to do? What do we want to allow companies to do? And if the answer is companies can't defend themselves, but the U.S. government won't either, you're creating a very, very ugly structure. And the, one of the potential unintended consequences of that is, okay, what happens when you're not allowed to defend yourself and the government won't? you hire someone who is legally allowed to protect you. Now, I'm not sure anyone's really thought that far down the road, but people are not going to invest trillions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure and then say, and I hope nothing happens to it, whether it's bad commercial players, bad criminal players or bad national players. So if we don't come up with an answer, An answer will emerge and that answer may not be what we wanted
3: yeah i think there's there's a really interesting open policy question here the dean's highlighting what is the role of the u.s government in protecting uh, non-government space assets Um, if you look at other domains the maritime domain actually the navy has sent forward forces into the gulf to be able to protect commercial shipping vessels that are in duress um, from uh, you know, Iranian fast boats attacked. Now, it's not a blanket we're going to protect everything I mean you, you need a much larger force structure to be able to do that. But there are certain circumstances where it does make sense and it is in the national interest to do that. So I think that 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 we, we need to better unpack that policy issue and examine it and, and I think that there are lessons in international maritime law and maritime and in the cyber domain that possibly um, space uh, can learn from. I think it also ties into um, there needs to be this tighter partnership between the public sector and the private sector, um, and a tight relationship. Um, I think um, not, not knowing the specifics of of that Starlink incident you mentioned, just having that that trusted line of communication open between the government and those commercial operators, I think will go a long way in terms of understanding what what do we need, what are the threats to your operations, Um, and and where might the government be able to help, but also can the government share information that allows that commercial operator to take their own protective or defensive measures?
1: One of the things that we've spoken about here has been um, the need to cooperate with certain partners. Um, it seems to be something that China is doing more of as well in terms of cooperating. You mentioned Venezuela. Um, the Chinese have taken a keen interest in expanding their um, space program in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, also in, in, in Argentina, they have their space um, satellite tracking station. So, and, and with respect to Russia as well, they've been increasing their space cooperation. Um, How do these relationships between China and other nations affect American national security?
2: Space in this regard is only one tool in the toolbox. For the Chinese, that's how they view space. Space is important in, in its own right. It supports information, but it's also a diplomatic tool. It's a trade tool. It's a technology tool. China exports satellites It really set the stage for turnkey operations. They would design a satellite, build a satellite, train the ground crew, build a ground station, launch the satellite, all for one low, low price. As a result, the country that buys that satellite becomes accustomed to operating Chinese systems. And so if they become better off financially, evolve further along technologically, guess who they're gonna pick? the next generation of satellites. It's sort of like Toyota. When you're young, you buy a Scion. As you get a little older, you buy a Toyota. And if if things go well, you wind up buying a Lexus. Why those three? Because they're all Toyota products and everything works the same way inside. So the Chinese have been very good at that long-term planning of using space, or in other cases, uh, 5G, communications, or in other cases, port management skills, whatever, to get the foot in the door to build that relationship. So in the long term, there's a trade relationship, there's a political relationship. And in an ideal world from the Chinese perspective, a dependency relationship.
3: Well, In telecommunications, there's actually a great example, not great examples, but um, with what China is doing with their Belt and Road Initiative, um, the 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 African Union as they, their state-owned enterprises uh, acquired and and operated the African Union telecommunications networking system. It was reported that for five years, data was being siphoned off of that network and sent back to Beijing every night. Um, Tanzania is another example where um, China came in, put a nice bow on a great package deal to build out their telecommunications infrastructure. And Tanzania, as a result, they've started adopting more Beijing-like data laws, cyber laws, um, more restrictive on their social media, um, um, access to the networks, et cetera. So there are uh, larger consequences of going down that that China path.
1: One of the things that influences our abilities to counter China is obviously the budgets that we have. Um, you know, focused on on space in, space in, initiatives. Uh, President Biden signed off on a thirty three point three billion dollar uh, space budget for fiscal year twenty twenty four. That's about a fifteen percent increase um, uh, over uh, fiscal year twenty three. How do you view those funds? I mean, is this are those funds necessary? Or are those funds sufficient? Um, what would be the sort of best use of that increased investment? We'll start with Carrie. Yeah,
3: you know, I, I I wish I had data on. Gosh, what did the Air Force look like after 19, You know, those first couple of years after what 1947. Um, it takes a while to build a capability. Um, I think they will continue to have to grow right now, just the the number of guardians, I think it's the the request in the budget this year was was 9400 active duty guardians. That's 20 times less, less than the next service, the Marine Corps. Um, And yet we are asking them to make this radical change to their space architecture from buying these few exquisite systems to these proliferated architectures in the hundreds and thousands. Um, We're asking them to do more with commercial. We're asking them to have a global presence, uh, working with the combatant commands, uh, working with our allies and partners. We're asking them uh, to engage more uh, uh, in the international policy arena. Uh, We need them to operate differently than they've had to operate in the past with this threat threatening contested environment that they just haven't had to train and, and exercise in before. Um, they need greater uh, intelligence knowledge of what our adversaries are building and how they they uh, intend to threaten us. So there is just so much more on their plate in a domain that traditionally has been a little sleepier, a little sleepier, a little slower. Um, um, so I expect uh, it will have to grow.
1: Um, in other episodes, we've spoken at least in part on um, international law and its role within um, uh, within U.S.-China competition. What is the? We'll start with Dean. What is the legal sort of governing? What is the legal architecture governing space activities right now, and what needs to be added to that to make it more protective of, let's say, American interests?
2: well the legal architecture for space is actually very limited it's mostly the outer space treaty signed in 1967 and a group of uh, subsequent uh, conventions uh, that support that the outer space treaty basically says uh, you can't lay claim to a uh, planet or a satellite so uh, natural body so you can't plant the flag on the moon and say it's ours Um, that uh, there's certain responsibilities for the state that launches it, and you cannot place weapons of mass destruction. That's a very important consideration, which is to say anything else is okay. It's just you can't put nuclear or biological or chemical weapons in space. After that, um, a lot of space law is actually structured around um, bandwidth and telecommunications. So the International Telecommunications Union, the FCC, have enormous influence over the legal regimes that govern space. Um, The good news, sort of, is that despite 65 years, there actually hasn't been much in the way of space warfare. So we actually don't have a Hague Convention. We actually don't have much in the way of legal issues uh, regarding the operation of space systems in wartime um there is a rule by the way that you cannot deliberately harm astronauts so that that's an important consideration there but again fortunately nobody's tried so we're sort of in terra incognita here we don't really know what the legal regime's actual impact would be in the event of a space conflict because it would be the first time that that's happened uh kerry brought up the air force it's sobering to consider that in 1914 people sort of initially waved at each other over the uh, battlefields of france um, before eventually trying to kill each other and then rules slowly evolved Uh, given the speed of technology evolution in space that will probably be faster Uh, i doubt very many people are going to be waving at each other in space even figuratively uh, because it's too important but right now legal obligations are still unclear.
3: And then that translates to the policy space, right? So how do we think about, or what constitutes a hostile act or hostile intent in space? When is the use of force warranted if you are under threat? What triggers triggers an article five response? And we've talked about this in the context of NATO, the US and Japan. Uh, uh, signed, uh, uh, made a a joint declaration that that space, Article five extends to space. So what does that look like? If it's a cyber attack, how do you attribute it in a relevant timeline for for response? Um, uh, Operationally, if a Chinese satellite and a US satellite are on a collision course, what are what are the operational practices do you call the chinese do you tell them to move out of the way are they even going to answer the phone or answer the email i mean there's just so much i think that still needs to be evolved in the policy and operational space now that we're looking at space as a more as a war war fighting domain i
1: this This will be the last question for each of you. And I'll do the same for you both. Um, It's a softball. I like to end with a softball. (laughs) Although I was told in one of these that my softball question was not a softball. This one really is. Um, If there's one Takeaway. I mean there's a lot of information here we talked about how this affects the economy how it affects the day to day lives of American citizens and national security and military implications commercial implications. If There's one thing that you want viewers of this episode to take away as it relates to us China competition in space, what is the sort of key message um, that you'd like them to leave with um, and we'll start with Carrie.
3: So I would say space is another dimension of the strategic competition that we are in with China. Um, we are seeing it on the military front, on the economic front, space is another dimension on that. of that. China is clearly intent, not just on matching us in space, but on surpassing us. And so when I think you know, militarily or for our defense, what's the so what why does it matter that they would surpass us or um, and for me it comes down to an advantage on the battlefield and how space enables our young men and women in uniform to have an edge on the battlefield if china has that edge in space if they can see where our forces are they can target put, put put metal on target they can target our bases um see all of our movements um We no longer have the edge.
2: I think one of the things that we have taken for granted is American exceptionalism. And the most emblematic aspect of that is that we are still the only nation to have landed people on the moon and brought them back safely. And China has made very clear it's going to do that. One of the things to think about here is what happens to that image of American exceptionalism? What happens to that global message of we put a man on the moon? When the Chinese say, Yeah, so have we? What happens if China establishes, even robotically speaking, longer term missions on Mars before we do? What happens if the only space station in orbit is the Chinese space station? because the International Space Station is eventually gonna have to be deorbited because it is now older than most people's cars. So something to think about here at the more meta level is that space is a place of strategic symbolism and strategic messaging. China understands that. It's one of the key reasons why they are pushing hard is all of the things that Kerry said, military, economic, practical applications, Absolutely, but they also understand the nation that dominates space, their flag is gonna fly a bit higher. It will get a little more respect around the world, not just in the Indo-Pacific. Right now, that is still the United States. NASA has that reputation, but it can only maintain that. The U.S. can only maintain that. If we are prepared to systematically, consistently, persistently push American achievements in space, which by the way, have strategic benefits, but also to do that communicating of we rule this roost, which makes us the desirable partner and which is emblematic of what is so special about the United States compared to the People's Republic of China. Well, let me tell you from here at Armstrong base, let me tell you from here, the first human transmission from Mars or Martian orbit.
1: Well, thank you both Dean and Carrie. We really appreciate this. Um, I'm sure our viewers learned a lot about space. I certainly did. Um, And we we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you for listening in on this series. We hope you found both today's episode and the series as a whole, informative and thought provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at vandenbergcoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. If you missed any episodes, be sure to check out the rest. Once again, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this has been the Vandenberg Coalition